You're listening to the Winter of Discontent podcast. It's taken me until season four to realise I can abbreviate this to WADPOD. I've just set up a Buy Me A Coffee account for people who want to support the work we're doing and help us with sourcing some of the contemporary accounts, newspapers, magazine articles, etc. that we need to tell our story. Plus, it's not widely known, but the whole show is recorded on an iPhone, so the equipment seriously needs upgrading. So if you'd like to be a supporter, please go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wodpod, W-O-D-P-O-D, and leave a tip. It's not a subscription, just a one-off show of support. Anyway, on with the show. John, where would you be today without Mr Epstein? I don't know. Are you, are you driving down to London tonight? Yes, somebody's taking us down here. You heard the news this afternoon, I believe. Yes. And Paul's already gone down? Yes. I see. What, you've no idea what your plans are for tomorrow? No, no, we'd just go and find out, you know. And just have to play everything by ear. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Not operating under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone for so many songs. But I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next ten years or albums. Winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 31 Welcome back to January 7th, 1969. Three Beatles have arrived at the Twickenham soundstage, but we are still waiting for John to make an appearance. I'll run through a summary of episode 30 in a few seconds, but first, a quick podcast recommendation. Detours and Outliers, a podcast about those one-of-a-kind experimental or downright oddball albums in an otherwise well-known artist's catalogue. If you've ever wondered how Lou Reed's Metal Machine music sounds, or Pat Boone's in a metal mood for that matter, this is the podcast for you. Fascinating and very entertaining. We're in our second year, and as granular as we are, we're only just beginning day four of the Get Back Project. I see each episode as its own standalone exploration of the Beatles' personal relationships, their craft and their wider organisation. And I feel that we can learn so much about the whole Beatles story just by understanding these recordings better. You can of course binge the first three days of rehearsals in 29 episodes. But if you just want to catch up, here is the summary of episode 30. As the tape begins, you can hear someone shaking a tambourine. This is either Ringo or Glyn Johns, 
who can be seen in the Get Back documentary doing just this. But both men are present as recording commences. The boom mic swings over to the piano where Paul is running through the long and winding road. This is musically as complete as it will ever be, but it lacks the lyrics for the bridge and the second verse. Paul then warms his vocal cords up on Golden Slumbers, which has now evolved since yesterday and incorporates the chorus of another song, Carry That Way. As Paul returns to the long and winding road, George can be heard in the background talking to Glyn. Although it's hard to hear, it's seemingly about recording equipment. Paul continues running through his song ideas, this time the instrumental Castle of the King of the Birds. The boom mic moves a little so we can hear George's conversation with Glyn. Mal has now joined. George asks Mal to track down some unnamed person via head of Apple in the US, Ken Mansfield. This appears to be someone supplying or building drums for Ringo. This doesn't appear to come to anything since Ringo plays his maple Ludwig Hollywood kit for the remainder of his time in the Beatles. George brings up Sunday's documentary about the band Cream, having missed much of the conversation yesterday morning. Ringo repeats that he kept switching channels, but he criticises the filming and editing, especially the poor continuity throughout. He compares this to Arthur Brown. I got this interpretation from the Sulpy book, Drugs, Divorce and a Slipping Image. Listening back, I'm not 100% sure Ringo does say Arthur Brown. So this statement could have a completely different meaning. If you can decipher it, let me know on the social media accounts. Paul plays a fast-paced rendition of Lady Madonna on the piano and some of the assembled group tap along as they're talking. Ringo and George discuss Ginger Baker's interview about technique and Ringo shows his understanding of some of the rudiments of drumming and how the same strokes can be applied to different drums for different effects. In fact, what they're discussing, flam triplets, is a technique ably demonstrated by Ringo in the hook of the Beatles' 1963 hit, I Wanna Hold Your Hand. Ringo asks Glyn if they'll be able to hear any recordings today. This may be similar to what George was asking as he came in. Glyn still isn't ready. He wants to use a mono tape machine, which he hasn't got, rather than the 8-track recorder which he's been supplied with. An audio slate unusually describes where the various Beatles are on the soundstage. Paul at the piano, George, Ringo and Mal by the drums, basically sitting behind Paul. Mal is describing a photographer who will be good for stills. Ringo says they need some up-to-date shots, especially for the Beatles book. It's possible that they're talking about Ethan Russell, whose work will eventually form the bulk of the book that accompanies the album. George, aware of the mic, wonders why they're still taping the conversation. Mal says that people naturally become self-conscious when they know they're being recorded. But George disingenuously states that he's only worried that a stray expletive might spoil a good bit of film. Mal explains that they can always bleep it out. Mal is full of praise for the colour rushes that he viewed along with Michael and Tony this morning. The raw footage, as we have seen in Peter Jackson's edit, is very well shot against the coloured backdrop. As Paul runs through, she came in through the bathroom window, they sing along, still enthused by yesterday's rehearsal of it. Ringo parodies the words affectionately. 
George asks Mal when Joe the chauffeur will arrive. He has an errand for him to go to his house, Kinforms, and pick up a wooden case for his Fisher Hi-Fi amplifier and take it to Alex's workshop in Boston Place. He says his cleaner Margaret will know where it is. Mal explains that one of Joe's functions is to pick up macrobiotic meals for John and Yoko for lunch. Paul is riffing off a stray comment from a crew member, clearly looking for some new song inspiration. Ringo good-naturedly engages with a member of the crew who wants to talk about football. None of the Beatles follow the sport. Paul teases him by asking if he knows who will win the hockey, but the man seems to not realise he's being teased. Having failed with Ringo and Paul, the crew member asks George who he thinks will win the cup. George's response, while half-joking, is quite rude, but the man seems unperturbed. After an awkward silence, George compares the soundstage and perhaps all the crew milling around to Liverpool's Lime Street station. George then goes on to talk about a picture that he'd found of the Beatles and wives and girlfriends posing with the Maharishi when they attended his course in Bangor, Wales. George notes how uncomfortable Paul, Jane Asher and John's wife Cynthia look as if they don't know exactly why they're there. Oddly, Jenny Boyd, Patty's sister, is in the picture to make up numbers, as Ringo's wife Maureen had only just given birth a few days earlier. Paul now moves from the piano and plugs in his bass, complaining that John is late again. Ringo and Michael come to John's defence. Paul comments that Ringo has been on time every day and jokes because he's a pro. Michael says... He knows that because he's seen his tap dancing on Friday. A blast from Paul's amp startles Ringo. It's still a bit early. We can now rejoin the three Beatles as Paul follows his muse on the bass, perhaps finding it better for composing more upbeat material than the piano. Two big sort of marks there. Bad boy, you know, playing bass. Bloody is. Bloody near your heart, that, George, you know. <laughs> Too bloody near the heart for bruises. Paul was complaining about bruises to his ribs from the bass. Grazed you. I walked into a chair in the dark. Very dangerous, the dark, you know. You can hurt yourself in the dark. George has also been in the wars. He's bruised his knee during a nighttime manoeuvre. Paul plays a bluesy bass part accompanied by his tapping foot. things hanging down, don't bite them, because <laughs> there's people around here trying to catch it. Another George comment about the boom microphone swinging over to capture their conversation. <laughs> you got me trombone now. George being typically goonish calling his guitar a trombone. 
It's probably tin, I don't know. It's like tin. three I with the visa. When I first saw it, I didn't wonder what it is. They're very pretty face, aren't they? Yes, they're like uh, toy ones. Yeah. Yeah, they're very nice. Where's it silver? Oh. Oh. It was supposed to be somebody said it was white gold. Mr. Epstein said it was white gold. But it doesn't matter much to me. <laughs> George talking to Michael about presumably a watch that Michael thinks is silver, but George has been told was white gold by their manager, Brian Epstein. George jokes that for all he knows, it might be tin or, as he puts it, free with the Beza. The Beza was a children's comic. Mr. Paul, in a composing mood, repeats the line musically. As Ringo sings along, George is heard to comment, You're trying to get me to jam along with the lads. We have your Vincent Echo unit. Peter, can we have a Vincent Echo unit for these microphones, please? I think we could sing with good, but you know, have better mics. We could have better mics too, you know, Peter. Those big Neumanns. Yeah, and then we might be able to pick up the candid dialogues better. Yes. Too. We might, Michael. That's quite true. Paul stops to ask Peter Sutton about getting a Binson Echo. We discuss this on the second. George also would like better microphones to improve the sound. Michael reminds him teasingly that this would mean better opportunities to eavesdrop. Paul teases him, pretending John has arrived. Quick, you just missed John. George quotes a line from Lady Madonna. Perhaps this is a reference to it being Tuesday. Michael says John called Glyn Sunny yesterday and he still hasn't got over it. A second improvisation from Paul. Well, I'm a low-down blues machine <laughs> from Waverly. You know what I mean? <laughs> Cause I'm a low-down blues, a low-down blues machine. I came from George's guitar amp is switched on now. Paul is clearly looking for something bluesy. Oh, 
Anita Harris was a British singer and TV personality. In this context, it's just Paul punning on George's surname, Harrison. As Paul plays another idea, George is reminded of What Did I Say by Ray Charles. Prompted by Michael, Paul picks up on the idea, mixing it with Shout by the Isley Brothers and a pretty cruel Lulu impression. Have you seen that instrumental spot on there? With the guy. Show, yeah. The conductor's guy. Who is I think it's really too much, Johnny. <laughs> Johnny Stewart? No, Johnny. One of them. One of those Johnnies. Better than the average one. They're talking about Lulu's TV show, Happening for Lulu. Although, from next week's show, it will be simply titled Lulu. The show they are talking about was broadcast on the 4th of January. It featured Johnny Harris and his orchestra, the Johnny that they are now referring to. This episode included the now legendary performance by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, where they didn't play the pre-arranged song and overran their time, dedicating an instrumental to the cream. This led to the band being banned by the BBC. What now follows is a fascinating fly-on-the-wall moment as we listen to Paul create the Beatles' next number one single, seemingly out of thin air. He plays something simple on the bass and then lets his imagination run free. Once he has a melody line, he sculpts it into shape.
initially he tries to make it a 12 bar blues George could immediately see the potential. Tape cuts. A camera. This is camera A, slate 103. As you just heard behind the audio slate, Paul has added the get back chorus. We sadly don't hear the moment he created that. I don't know, I listened, you know, I listened to the yeah. album when you gave it to me yeah. and I wasn't yeah. very impressed with it yeah. and then I listened to it like, last night and played the one side of it again because I met him and because he's a nice fella and all that yeah. and I still don't like it. I <laughs> 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 just don't like that sort of thing, that type of thing. And it's like, it's nice on the first one, just the idea of his voice, his hands pissed, just going, yeah, but when he just goes on and on, every track, he sounds pissed. Great <laughs> Yeah, yeah. George is talking about the singer he likes personally, but doesn't enjoy his music. Glyn appreciates the arrangements. It's a good, it's, you know, musically, and that's great. When Michael asks, who's that? Glyn explains, Randy Newman. George slipping in a Bob Dylan reference again. The line, not my cup of meat, from the mighty Quinn. Paul returns to get back with guitar accompaniment from George and hand claps from Ringo. George and Ringo both clearly enjoying this. Some of the lyrics of the second verse are already in their finished form. George almost getting the riff that John will play. Tony Richmond on his lighting. <coughs> 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 
like gold clothes one. It's because, uh, you know, I suppose why Tamla must be so easy for them to do it. They just go in and don't even have to write anything down. I saw so that the was when she was down. Oh, she's nice. <laughs> 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 sort of singing, you mean? Or no, just a bit. Social. Social. Yeah. She's great, yeah. She, she, she gets more experience, all the radios, and you said, Can you got the Supremes to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there! <laughs> <laughs> but all with uh, 10 foot of makeup and the uh, new wigs. Yeah, and 100 managers. No, that's all. Right. She seemed the only one who, you know. I, I, I know really do that, do Oh, yeah. Paul talks about meeting Diana Ross, which he's heard talking about in episode one. George recalls meeting the Supremes in New York and how they seemed a bit phased by the Beatles' hotel room and the noise of every TV and radio playing at once. Didn't they get sack the others and get new ones? They got in at Blue Bell. Florence. Patty LaBelle. Well, they got rid of Florence and they got in one of the people called Sydney. <coughs> Sydney Birdsong. Birdsong, good man. They then discuss the recent sacking of Florence Ballard and her replacement, Cindy Birdsong, from Patti LaBelle's Bluebells. As Paul continues to work on Get Back, George discusses the Blossoms, whose lineup included Fenita James, Gene King and Darlene Love. Their main claim to fame is that they recorded the version of He's a Rebel that Phil Spector released, credited to the Crystals. But they remained on Spector's label singing backing vocals, notably on the Righteous Brothers' You've Lost That Loving Feeling. But they could also be heard on other less than sublime works such as Bobby Boris Pickett's The Monster Mash. As far as George's association with the Blossoms go, he seems to indicate that he's used them for backing vocals in LA, possibly on Jackie Lomax's album, which he produced. There are female backing vocals on the album, but they're uncredited, typically. Michael thinks they also sang on the Stones track, Salt of the Earth. Ringo now singing along to the chorus of Get Back and La La Laing the verse. George too improvises a vocal. Get back. Get back. Get back. Get back. Get back. 
which typically feels that wah-wah is appropriate for this song too, but the pedal is very squeaky. I got blisters on my fingers, jokes Paul, parodying Ringo's outburst on the song Helter Skelter last year. No, I mean, no. Oh, I Feeling he needs to capture this moment on tape, Paul asks Glyn if he can take it. Glyn grumpily mutters how he hasn't got anything working yet. Paul asks him to give them a shout when he's ready. Ringo gets behind the drum kit and picks up the beat. guitar. John has arrived and just picked up the guitar and joined in, without comment. Sounds like Jackie, comments Paul referring to the throaty vocal sound he's adopting. But there's more to it than this. Jackie sings the refrain, Get Back, repeatedly on the outro of Sour Milk Sea, a song written by George, and this may have been the inspiration. Tape cuts. This is roll 53, A camera, slate 104, Sink. Rehearsals have paused for a moment. The four Beatles plus Michael and Glyn are once again discussing the format for the live show. But this quickly degenerates into a debate on whether they should do the show at all. Following yesterday's argument between Paul and George, this is a new low point. The future of the project and of the band teeters on a precipice now. The discussion is a long one, so I'll present it as another two-parter, continuing in the next episode. Editorial note, both John and George noodle on their guitars throughout, which can be distracting. Unfortunately, I don't have Peter Jackson's AI programs to clean this up, so it does take a bit of concentration to hear everything. If we're going to do that, that'll be yeah, that's, that's, yeah. But I mean, you know, don't use it if it's not good, I mean. But no, see, now there's, this is a 
Well, we've thrown it away. Well, but this is, I mean, like if we cancel the show now, we'll still be throwing it away. Because it's all, I don't know, probably. That's the way we tend to do it, you know, we throw a thing and then come back. That's what we've never actually done. We've never actually done it. I think that the worst we should have is a documentary, which is a commercial enterprise. There's no reason, I think, why we shouldn't also get a show. Although none of us yet are happy with the idea of doing it here. Yeah, I don't, I don't agree with you. Yeah, it's fine. Come on, it's fine. It's, it's alright. I think it's just not as good as it could be yet. But it's, it's No, because nobody will take any Mr. Epstein things, you know, nobody will ever say anything. It's going to be sort of done less. I mean, we've been very negative since Mr. Epstein passed away. And that's why we haven't been positive. I mean, you know, that's why all of us in turn has been sick of the group, you know. Because there's nothing positive in it. You know, it is a bit of a drag. But the only way for it not to be a bit of a drag is for the four of us to think, should we make it positive? Seriously, you're gonna do. See, the thing is, it's like that. 
Because I've, you know, I've, I've seen this show in my head with all the great ideas, you know. Just because I, I was listening to Pepper the other night, and I saw, you know, with that laughing, and there was nothing there to laugh at when the when the crowd laughs in the solo. And it's a, it's a turn in your head kind of show. You know, that's what they're talking about. And uh, it's great, you know. I mean, and it really is great talk. But um, yeah, you've got to sort of pull it together. See, I think if we... You've got to do it. I think... Just to follow us. Here's the voice talking quite well again. I think if we've embarked on the enterprise, which is your decision, I mean, after all, you're all here. See, I mean, only get as much as we can out of it. But any other director in the world... But any other director in the world would say, fuck off. Get off my set, you I mean, would they? Just suddenly in the middle, suddenly in the middle of, my, of a thing I was doing, trying to pull together four people just sort of shouted, don't really want to do it. Fuck off. I couldn't operate with that. I mean, if Jackie in the middle of the album had sort of said, don't want to do it, you know, it wouldn't help the album. You know, it doesn't help. It's like, it's like right from the beginning of it. He was like, gotta do it, gotta do it, and you've only just got to sort of watch how great he is and sort of, oh, oh, all right. Well, if you've got someone like you're doing an album with or a production with, and if they're fu fully switched on like, and they're going, all you've got to do is sort of, oh yeah, but you used to do it, lads. You know, but we, we had a lot more incentive then. But we did, I mean, you know, those films you look at, plus that was us doing it, you know. Well, if that's what doing it is, I, that's why I don't want to do it. Yeah, right, yeah, I, I think. never like that. It's always yeah, dramatic. Yeah, but I, you know, you know, uh, see, you mean, it, that takes the thing and, and twists it a bit. Well, it does because I never No, but you see, nowadays, you've grown up and you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. See, that's it. We don't have to do put the pancake on and go out in front and sweat and shake our heads because we're not that anymore. We've grown up a bit. Because we've done you know. that anyway. Yeah, right. Because you... so, so the one I mean is that we did it then, but it doesn't mean like to do it again we have to do all that. Right. But because now, like, for him to do it, he has to do a thing in a black bag with Yoko, you know. And, and you're doing it, White I suppose. Bag. White bag. White bag. <laughs> you know, but that's it. You're doing it then on this level, you know. But... But do you yeah. see... You, do you, you know, still want to I mean, perform I an think... audience or do you just see yourself as a, as a recording? See, I, I think, think, I think, right. see, I think there's communication. I, I think, think there's the something to do with an audience there. I think. I think, I think I mean, we've got a bit shy, you know. I think I've got a bit shy of certain things, you know. And it's like, uh, it is like that. It's like... Um, <coughs> I guess maybe the difficulty is also getting up in front of an audience with all you've done in front of audiences and trying to get something as good, but maybe not the same thing. And that's a very hard thing to get back. In other words, you mustn't think of getting back what you had. No, that's what Yoko was saying it. the other day. You know, we do, mustn't try and get in the audience and get them wild. Yeah. Oh, although well, they may be, but they kind of want us because they've grown up as well. I mean, everyone in this room has grown up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. That's, but that's, I just that's, think well, that's what's is, great is about it. it. You know, that's why I think we don't need to sort of play down or do anything. Yeah, I know. We really got to do, really got to do what we do, but like with the same kind of. No, it's not even discipline. It's the same kind of drive. Dri Desire it's to do it somehow. You know, it's like do it. it's like with all these songs that you know, there's some See, really listen, great listen, songs. No, listen, listen, and I just hope we don't blow any of them. 
Because you know how often, like on albums, we sometimes blow one of your songs because we come in in the wrong mood, and uh, you say, "This is how it goes. I'll be back," and we're all just. Oh, what do you mean? I, that's why we're wrong to throw away the show, because there's no desire. I mean, like. Sure, I think I, MLH, can do a show with you better than anybody in the world because I think I'm the best rock and roll director in the world except without any force humility. But equally, at the moment, we haven't got a show and so none of us really want to do it. Yeah, the I know, trouble yeah, I know. is, that's why, like George is saying, as he's saying, none of us want to do the show because there ain't a show. And it's we've got to find something yeah, that want to go out the and do it. songs too, you know, because really, I don't want to do any of my songs on the show. No. They just turn out shitty. Like, no, well, see, now, look, well, this is where know, I think, though. This is uh, where I think they come silly, out like yeah. a compromise, whereas in a studio, they can but work see, on them till you look, want George, get it see, how you want Last year, you were telling me that you can do anything you want, yeah. Paul, anything you desire, you can do, you know. Yeah. Now, but these days, but you you're saying... Desire it. Oh, but you're saying before the show is finished, and before we've done it, now, like the arrow, letting forth, is letting forth on this word of, we're not going to be able to do it, you know, they're going to come out of compromise. Now, I don't think that, I really don't. I think we've got it, you know, I really think we're very good. And we can get it together if we think that we want to do these songs great. We can just do it great, you know. But I think thinking it's not going to come out great won't help. You know, that's like, that is like meditation where you just, you get into a bummer and you come out of it and don't go through it, you know. I think we can like help if we, you know, on anything like that. If so, okay, you're see, sick of playing the drums. We've all got to say, look, we're sick too. You know, pat, pat, look. You know, it's all the same, and you know, it goes through. You know, it's no use to say, well, fuck. But you see, I think fuck, one of the yeah. things about well, doing know, the wrong things. about doing the show here is it's too easy. Like when we're in the car looking for locations in you know, glorified boutiques, yeah. then we started, that's when we first started talking about going. And then Dennis said, well, and I us do a Twickenham, and Neil said, let's do a Twickenham. Because it's so easy, Dennis, I've got all that. And I think that's wrong. I don't mean we should put obstacles in our way, but also in a funny way, like you were talking about, you had Brian to fight, which was a strong thing. We're not putting any obstacles in our way. And putting that bag, we should have some yeah, force to resist. We should really have to make it. But just doing it in the backyard, I mean, it's literally almost, it's almost your backyard, close to your backyard than anyone. But it's, we're doing it in the backyard, I think that's too easy. Yeah, this is right. We're right, not right, fighting right. it. We, we've got, there's no balls to the show at all. Because there's no balls. I mean, I'm included. There's no balls in any of us. Right, right. Yeah. And that's why. Uh, I think we're all being soft about it. We're all being soft about it. If you want to do a show and you've decided, which is your decision, any of you can opt yeah. But if you yes. all have decided to do a show, then it should be the best show. And whatever slight inconveniences there are. Sync 105, 105. It's got to be as good as you are, because once you hit that audience, I mean, we can all talk about it like this in here. Once you hit that audience, you are the Beatles. You are four jerks. I mean, and I'm not saying you've got to think of them, that's really my job, because when you're playing your guitar, you don't want to think about all those millions of unwashed, but, but like that's maybe my job, but you know who you are, and so far, the, the show side of the operation isn't good enough for you. I mean, I think we're all being soft, and it's all too easy. Well, what thanks, kind of thanks, obstacles are you talking about? Well, I don't know, but I, that was the pep talk for the morning. Yes, but what kind of obstacles? Just give a bad example. The bad so example that we know. is the, is the going away. Going away, huh? Yeah. That's the bad example. Which well, I so that we'd be in a sort of scene. Yeah. Having to do having a thing in a framework. Yeah. That's it. It's no sort of framework. That's why I jumped up there. It's like hard to do it. Yeah. Because that's 
that was, I, using that as a talking point, that was a framework, that was a challenge. I don't mean that in a boring way, because you didn't know who the hell the audience was going to be. That was all kind of things, like acoustically, which may interest you even more, is the presence of open air, which you know about, which how great it is. But that was a framework, that was taking you away. I'm not talking again like the critic from The Guardian, that was taking you away from the environment. See, no, listen, the, you know what I mean? And yeah. that was, pow, there you are, and pow, how are you going to deal with it? And pow, it's going to be fantastic. As, it, that was power, you see, and we ain't got no power at the moment. The only thing about that is that uh, we don't want to go away. I know, I know. You know, I, know. I, know I, I know if I say it again, yeah. I get a big left-handed fist in the teeth. I don't see what, you know what, it's going to be the same thing as here, but with the... It's going to be a bit nicer place to be in, but it's going to be even more complicated trying to plug in and all the mics and tapes and all that crap, video. But in a funny way, that's, I don't mean, I mean, we all know mean about because first of all, visually, the thing that interests me naturally, the thing that worries me by doing it here is just make it look like any, it's going to make it look like a cream, but just a couple of shots held a bit longer. But if we went away, we've got that all enormous, I'm, I'm not, I hear, I'm stuck feeling full of brushes, but I'm talking about the framework, if we went away, You've got the enormous plus of the visuals. Think of the helicopter shot over the amphitheater with the water, with the lights in the water, torch lit, 2,000 Arabs. Oh, I know it's You know, I mean, visually it is fantastic. Right. But therefore, that, so therefore that was a challenge. And, and you see, I just myself, I'm able to think of any other framework to put us in, to make it work. But it does really need a framework, and it doesn't need it to be done just in the backyard of Turkey. And in a funny way, I think, George, you see that those obstacles are kind of good because... I don't mean this in any sense like discipline, but if you haven't had obstacles like that, for a while, it's always good to go on... I mean, I know you've done it all, but maybe you just haven't been there. It's a very difficult thing, once you are you, to create false obstacles, because what you've been doing for five years is trying to eliminate obstacles. And the irony is now, five years later... But I think you've learned later, that you can't. Yeah. So like, you know, I think you've learned that there are obstacles. Um, <laughs> see, it, like, that's so difficult, because that... See, you don't want to play the, you don't want to play the show in straitjackets, which, that's the wrong kind of obstacle. But we've got to find something which has got a framework. Yes. Because at the moment it is too soft, the whole thing. I, that see, is I right. mean, it's, it's almost... Again, this isn't like a good one. But, but if it was a fan club show, that, that's coming. But remember the, the Wembley or Wimbledon one where we were in a cage and like filing past it. It was a, it just was a different kind of thing from we ever did. Uh, it was terrible. Oh, it was, it was. I mean, like I said, you know, that's not it. But, but that kind of thing gave that particular show a different thing because it was like playing to, uh, like you said, like a hospital. Playing to a thing. Well, like the reason I thought it was a hospital. Uh, see, Jude to me is a, is a tearjerker the way we did it with black and white and postmen and old mothers and children and, a, and the bellboy and, and the, the guy who just has spectacles at one point. See, and I think part of your music is, a, is tearjerking. That's why I thought it was a hospital. I thought it for the center of the I didn't think of the spastic board. I just thought of little kids who broken their legs. And I like mean, that. look, the thing is, it really would be great for us to get something like. A serious intent, you know. Say we were all very charitable, which we're not particularly. Really but uh, say we were really sort of charity nuts, then to do it. Uh... Hey, that's what you were, I think, it's kind of glamour. And also, it's one of the few times in history. Roll fifty-four. When uh, you had 
heroes of your own age, if you think about that, because prior to rock and roll, heroes were like Valentino, and there weren't many people. I mean, heroes weren't 16 years old, really. They were crushes, but they weren't actually, I could be there. And I could see, that's be the thing. That is the thing. But did you see, did anyone see on BBC Two that program where the students took over lineup? No, but I wanted to. I mean, go on. Um, they had late night lineup and they just had a little bit of normal lineup interview. Then they said, we went down to this place in Chelsea where they got an arts festival or something. Uh, art in the parks, pleasure, art in the parks or something. Where they built marquees and they just have people and they do it all by random selection, but all the artists in a hat and the ones that come out get shown there. And so the people went down to sort of go with this. And they said, why don't you do a TV show? Why don't you let us do a TV show? And they so, so they eventually let them give them 20 minutes. And uh, it was incredible, really. It wasn't very good, but it was pretty good. Because there's just this fella sort of sitting there, watching himself on a monitor screen, sort of drinking a cup of tea. But for a long time, you know, a bit too long for telly. For about five minutes with Revolution playing over it. Just. You know, and there's just this one shot of the fellow just held dead straight and the camera on the monitor zooming in and out on him. And, you know, he's picking up a cup of tea and that. And it's like, well, the students are sort of taken over, you know. It's like anarchy. And they got hold of BBC Two for a bit. And then they sort of, they just started to shouting at a couple of people and they weren't very good about it all, you know. They were a bit studenty about it and a bit embarrassed to be on. They didn't really take hold of the opportunity and do it. But it's that kind of opportunity we've got for an hour. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's you know, why we, you, we, we've like yesterday, the idea of playing a song to each second of the audience is wrong, because it was too bitty, and there was nowhere to get like it, and you were onto that one. But, like, I still think, do you want to go back, do you like the possibility? You can make it into a really, like, the good thing about Edith Love was that, that for that moment, then you could be on the one thing, because it was like a party for the people who were Yeah. Well, yeah. this is too, you see. Yeah, but this, uh, See, that's it. We still haven't done the show. No, we still haven't done the show, though. I mean, at the moment, we're just rehearsing the numbers for the show. And none of us has had the idea of what the show's going to be. And it's not going to be... Well, let's have a political broadcast. Yeah. Let's make it into... Into one of them. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, much, I'm more for that. Than, you know... I think, you know, like all of them, we have to get the right thing on, to get the right idea on. But again, going back, like Jude, I mean, we'll see, your part of the broadcast is... Jude was political. Yeah, Jude was terribly political. And it was a party. But That's the thing, we don't like party political broadcasts as such. No, but We've never liked them. Are, you know, I, I mean, turn them off when they come on. I try and find another channel and there never is. Yeah, but it's always as if it's incidental. Whatever we have to say to do with anything is always like incidental, hiding behind the chords of the tune or something, you know. But we don't actually come out like, uh, All You Need Is Love was a bit like that, you know. We got our props, we got our yin-yangs and our flowers and that, and saying All You Need Is Love, which was just, you know, very to the point. But I mean, you could, you could there's do. a time factor too, you know, if you're going to do an LP, the show, if you're going to do the whole LP, it's going to take up all the time, you're going to have... Yeah, oh, but yeah, but see, the thing is, I mean, okay, so say the show, actually, the, the mouth bit yeah. is singing the songs, but the vision, the, environment's the, the vision, and like, uh, what, who we're playing to, and where we're playing, and what's around us, and, I mean, you know, if you, Put us in the Houses of Parliament, 
playing in the in the main gallery at the House of Parliament. That's you know. You've got I always it think it's in the party, but I always think Could it's stronger. Could you get stronger. it? Could you get it for us, House of Parliament? We tried for the circus. We tried for the party. They didn't go for I always think it's stronger uh, that your work. I mean, for any artiste, be it a singer, be a musician, be an actor, that the work says it, as opposed to the conversation. You know what I mean? It's yeah. almost in a way we should get, we should do the show in a place we're not allowed to do it. You know, like we should trespass, go in, set up, and then get moved, and that should be the show. Yes. Getting forcibly ejected. Still trying to play your numbers and the police lifting you. I think that's too much fun. She came in through the bathroom oh, I window. I know. <laughs> Or maybe an orphan's home, an orphan's home. No, really, sentimentality, which is really, you must keep me from. But how about an orphan, a home for orphans? No, no, children, 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 the hope of the future department. What about an orphanage? How does that grab you guys? Liverpool Cathedral. How about an orphanage? Is that, it's like going once, going twice, going three times, and that's it. See, but I think, like, charity, you see, we oughtn't to do it for money, but equally we oughtn't to do it just for the 500 seats. But there's somewhere in between. See, that, those are the two ends of the scale, really, the 500 seats, or for just paying customers. And it ought to be somewhere in between. Orphanage, orphanage going downhill. My trouble is... I usually talk, talked over a good idea. We must get it onto these lines, isn't it? Because yeah. it'd be much nicer. We'll... I, I will every day say Tripoli, and every day I get close to the left. We fist. can make it like requests, as if we they're all special. Each song. But that was it. That was. Remember, we thought of that originally. Request. And this one is for Enoch. Do you remember that one of the ideas was like at you said like at the cavern, like you know this is for the girl who's next to George in the fifty-two bus. I'd like to dedicate this yes. one to Harold Wilson, the Pope, <laughs> singing nun. General Washington. It's called Up You. Up Your Pipe.
just trapped yourself in a bad vibe. We should send, we should send planes to Biafra and rescue all the people and then play at the airport as they come in do a show for them. Yeah. What's the biggest charity in the world? I don't mean in terms of like polio, but what's the most charitable thing anybody can do? You said Magic Christian time almost. Yeah. What's the most charitable thing anybody could do? Well, I mean, the real, the real thing is to have you all, have you all masked like sugar. murder people. Not too much sugar. Isn't it? I mean, that's, I mean, there's certain judicious murders in the history of the world which well, were very charitable. Well, they say, don't they say, charity begins at home. <laughs> so we're doing the George's house. <laughs> <laughs>
the tape doesn't capture is the initial cause of the discussion but what we can surmise from later comments by Paul and Michael is that George has just stated that he doesn't want to do the show this becomes apparent in a number of very negative statements from George made throughout the discussion when Paul makes an analogy with a film director wanting the best people to get the job done George bluntly remarks we'll get that person then When Paul states that he believes the band are still very good and if you look at old films of them you can see they were really doing it George flatly puts him down If that's what doing it is, that's why I don't want to do it And then there's the statement that he eventually sticks to I don't want any of my songs on the show because they'll just turn out shitty It's almost as if George is showing symptoms of depression particularly at the start of the conversation We know he has some domestic troubles which are affecting his mood, but this is the most negative he's been so far in the sessions. There are a few more upbeat moments. Whilst he's unenthusiastic about the complexity of staging the show in an amphitheatre, he seems more in favour of doing something more political, something with a message, like their all-you-need-is-love performance. He says that message was straight to the point. Interestingly, he appears to have envisaged this project as something along the lines of Bob Dylan and the band's basement tapes, which he'd brought home from Woodstock over Christmas. The perceived spirit of collaboration on those recordings appears to be what he was hoping to find at Twickenham. And it's the contrast between that dynamic and the Beatles' approach with Paul dominating and John Bailey contributing that's made him so disillusioned. Michael is actually doing a good job of keeping all options open and preventing the project from being shut down. He remains optimistic, trying to rescue what he can from the situation, saying the worst you'd have is a documentary. His view is to let's keep filming since we're all here anyway and see what we get. This, one could speculate, is the motivation for some of his more underhand covert recordings of the band conversations wanting to capture as much information as possible so he'd at least have some material to work with he asks the right kind of questions 
Do you still want to perform or do you see yourselves as a recording group seeking to get the band members to think about what they want? He also gets to the heart of what's wrong with the project. We don't have a show. That's why George is saying nobody wants to do a show. They need something to aim for, a plan, some motivation. All they have is a deadline and no idea where they're heading. Michael is, however, very resistant to the idea of just doing the show at Twickenham. In a way, he's right. The idea lacks ambition. In his mind, if the Beatles do a show, it has to be the best show. He sees Twickenham as too easy. Part of his understanding of their lack of motivation is that they don't have a challenge, or what he calls obstacles. When Paul asks for an example, he returns to his pipe dream of the amphitheatre, torchlit and 2000 Arabs. We do learn that there was a location scouting trip with Paul, Michael, Dennis O'Dell and Neil Aspinall and much like now they settled on Twickenham for want of a better idea. We can be thankful however that the Beatles didn't run with the idea of playing to a hospital of sick but not too sick children. But in a way he's agreeing with George that the show could make some sort of statement. Paul agrees with Michael that they may as well continue with the show and scrap the footage if it's not good enough. If that had happened, it would have been the second project in a row that Michael and Glynn had worked on that didn't see the light of day for many years. He also concurs with George's point that the band have been in the doldrums since Brian Epstein had died. Seemingly the absence of his guidance or at least his role as some kind of father figure has had a negative effect on the camaraderie and sense of purpose in the group. Even if his role was as someone to rebel against, this united the four members of the Beatles. In his absence, they have lost unity and have tended to form cliques and alienate each other. Whether it's John and George versus Paul, or Paul and John versus George, or all three versus Ringo, as occurred the previous year, causing the drummer to leave for a few weeks. As Paul points out, each one of us in turn has been sick of the group. Paul is suggesting to Michael that maybe he needs to take that assertive role with them, even suggesting he could throw them off set for wasting his time by saying they don't want to do a show. He too thinks the show should be some form of statement, and makes the suggestion that they could play in a public space unannounced and get arrested, sowing the seed for what would become the rooftop concert. Though his idea of sending planes to Biafra to rescue starving people and playing a concert for them, we can only be thankful they didn't attempt. The charity concert idea will at least reappear a few years later when George staged his Bangladesh concert. It seems he was happy to do complex and technically difficult work with people who inspired him, just not with the Beatles. Though his line that charity begins at home suggests he hadn't yet formed an opinion on doing good works. For lack of any better ideas, Paul's thoughts about performing somewhere they're not allowed, an airport or the Houses of Parliament, an idea it appears the Rolling Stones had also wanted to try, is really the only valuable thing to come from this discussion so far. John seems under the influence of something. This is usually noticeable because the pitch of his voice drops and his speech is slower. 
It's ironic that he restates that he believes the whole point is communication without really being able to communicate what he wants to do himself. Though this does suggest that Paul, Michael, George and he all agree that the show needs to be some kind of statement. His view is to keep filming, also because the worst case is we have a documentary of us making an LP. He does not think playing to orphanages or police balls, as he puts it, will make a good show. Ringo doesn't speak, but can be heard laughing at the idea of playing to an orphanage. The only other voice of note is Mal Evans, but he equivocates, suggesting they might as well stay at Twickenham, but also that they could perform a stage show at the Savile Theatre. At this point, the idea of the Beatles playing the same shows night after night is anathema to them and that short attention span is precisely why the band have evolved so quickly over their career. He is at least realistic that they are setting themselves a huge challenge to get a show, a film and an LP produced in such a short period of time. So the only thing they agree on so far is that the show needs a theme, some sort of message, but none of them know what that could be. Paul's idea of some kind of public performance and disturbance is the only other suggestion. Since the former could have been done in any setting and probably would have meant staying at Twickenham, it's not surprising that Michael developed the latter, because at least the setting would be part of the performance and therefore make a better film. One thing Paul and George agree on, although Paul often publicly denied this, Brian Epstein's death had mortally wounded the group. As George astutely points out, the Beatles' personal and professional relationship began to show signs of strain from the moment Brian Epstein, the manager who had steered their careers from leather-clad rockers playing in a damp Liverpool cellar, to global superstars and cultural icons had died. As soon as the Beatles learned of Brian's death, a schism emerged. John, George and Ringo stayed in Banger, site of the Maharishi's Transcendental Meditation course, and dealt with the press. Paul immediately travelled back to London to attend to business. From then on, Paul took responsibility for steering the direction of the band, but in doing so, he alienated his bandmates with his domineering approach. Paul took the view that the Beatles were moving away from the idea of having a manager. The others were far less convinced. John commented in 1970, I knew we were in trouble then. I didn't have any misconceptions about our ability to do anything other than play music. I was scared. I thought, we fucking had it. Brian died over a bank holiday weekend at the end of August 1967. The Beatles last saw him at a recording session at Chapel Recording Studios on the 23rd of August. He had just attended a Shiva, a Jewish period of mourning, which lasts seven days, for his father, who had just been buried. Prior to that, he had attended the Priory Clinic in an attempt to cure his chronic insomnia and addiction to amphetamines. As a way of cheering himself up, he invited associates Peter Brown and Geoffrey Ellis, plus some other young friends, to a party at his country retreat, Kingsley Hill, in East Sussex. On the Friday night, he was disappointed that his guests had not arrived and returned to London in low spirits. Paul describes the events in the Beatles anthology book. Brian was gay. I think they were going to be young men at the house, but no one showed up. Brian thought, look, it's Friday night. I've got to get back to London. If I rush, then I can go back to the clubs. 
It seems feasible to me knowing Brian, but they were all closing and there was no action. Brian returned to his home in Chapel Street, London and locked himself in his bedroom. He opened some correspondence and made a number of phone calls, including leaving a series of increasingly incoherent answer phone messages for an up-and-coming pop music manager, Simon Napier-Bell, on whom he had developed a crush. Around 5pm on the Saturday, Brian spoke to Peter Brown on the phone. Brown was still at Kingsley Hill and urged Brian to return. Brian was in no fit state to drive. Brown described him as sounding woozy, but he promised to eat something, watch jukebox jury, and call him back with the train that he would be on. He never made that call. On the 27th of August, Epstein's butler, Antonio, and his wife, Maria, began to worry that they hadn't heard from their employer for the whole day. They contacted Brian's assistant, Joanne Newfield, who told them not to panic, but left it until late afternoon before she came to the house. She knocked on the bedroom door, received no answer and then tried the intercom and again got no response. It was then that she called Peter Brown, who put her on to his doctor, John Galway. When Galway arrived, he broke down the door to Brian's bedroom. He asked Newfield to stay outside. Newfield recalls, He emerged. I've never seen a doctor so white. We knew Brian had died. Dr. Donald Tear, who performed the autopsy, stated that Brian had been taking the sleeping tablet, Carbitrol, for some time. Due to his insomnia, and that the amount of drug in his system was at a non-fatal level. Which suggests accidental death rather than suicide. The Beatles didn't attend the funeral, due to them not wishing to attract crowds of fans. But they did attend a memorial service. George Harrison made a personal gesture as a way to pay his respects. Although flowers are not allowed at Jewish funerals, he requested another Epstein associate and friend of Brian's, Nat Weiss, place a single chrysanthemum disguised in a newspaper on Brian's coffin. As Brian was laid to rest, Weiss cast the newspaper into the open grave and watched as it was covered with dirt. We'll return with the second half of this important existential crisis for the Beatles next time. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.